but if not, let me just kind of hurriedly uh, get us rolling and um, try to recap what we've done up to now. What we're trying to do, my goal is to help us define what it means to live out a life of grace. We all know we're saved by grace through faith alone. The problem is, uh, we, like Paul's audience, Paul in the book of Romans audience, was, um, uh, Paul's audience was steeped in its legalistic traditions, and so are we. We are performers. We, uh, we have learned to get love by performing well. Uh, we have learned to get approval by performing well. The whole culture has taught us that if you do good, you'll be rewarded. And then we come uh, to the realization that uh, we are saved not by our performance, but by the simple, um, sovereign grace of the living God. But we still bring that, that performance mentality into the kingdom with us. And um, in, 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 in it comes in various shades. And so some react one way, some react another, and some perhaps react perfectly balanced. But what we're seeing in the Christian church, I think, is a couple of reactions on both ends of the spectrum. One, of course, we've identified as legalism, Phariseeism. It is a, is it, it's a, and we described Phariseeism over about four weeks. Its essential fault is its desire to be seen and known and approved and applauded. It's an essential error of self-glory. Uh, but it also redefines what godliness is. It takes a code and substitutes the code for biblical, uh, for biblical mandate. And it elevates biblical man or the code above biblical mandate, and people start uh, considering themselves godly based on this wrong code um, and ignore what the real definition of godliness is about. And um, one of the other characteristics is that it undervalues the role and ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. Who needs him when you've got a code and a code book and a group of people telling you what the code is? Um, oh gosh, somebody just told me an example the other day and I've already forgotten it, but I, I wish I could tell you the example that they gave me about code living. It was a good one, but I forgot it. Um, the other thing is that ultimately uh, a legalist has to elevate himself uh, over the, the rest of us uh, because he's, he's judgmental and engaged in judging and consequently he has to um, ultimately elevate himself which is, a, which is a godless syndrome that we can say and I think I said this last week that um, uh, judgmentalism or judging is a subtle form of self-exaltation. Uh, it, it is a route to ascendancy on my own if I can make you look worse. Um, you know what they did? <laughs> but I would never do that. You know, it's, it's that kind of, uh, they did it like this, but you know me, I would never do that. Which makes me better than the person that I have just uh, assessed. So, um, what we have done is for four weeks uh, described a legalistic tendency among us. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, in my, my opinion, we're all legalists, 
All of us. Just in various degrees. And I told you about the book that I wanted you to read. Um, the book entitled um, 12 Steps of a Recovering Pharisee Like Me. I mean, that's in the title. And the guy that wrote it was saying, here are 12 steps to a recovering Pharisee like me. Well, that's why I like the book so. Because it, it was descriptive of me at so many points. We, we all have a little Pope in us. And, um, and we all have a little Pharisee in us. And so, <clears throat> but there's nothing that's more damaging and dangerous, uh, I think, to the body of Christ than that. It, is, it, is, it sucks the lifeblood um, out of the body of Christ. Legalism does. Now, the other thing that we want to look at is the other extreme on the other end of the spectrum, and that is, of course, antinomianism. And we're going to get to that. In fact, I think we'll get to some of that tonight. But there's, there's kind of a something in here that's almost a nice little bridge, a nice little transition from legalism to antinomianism. And so what I want to do first is, is talk to you about that little thing that's in between because I think both legalists and antinomians use this thing. Uh, and once we put that aside, I think it'll help us just uh, move right on into antinomianism and our efforts at describing it. What I'm referring to as the bridge between the two is something that you've all heard of before. It's called the weaker brother principle. Now, for those of you who have never heard of this thing, I, I, I want to ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and this is the text that's, uh, that is the groundwork um, for the weaker brother principle. Look at verse 9, 1 Corinthians 8, 9. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Skip down to verse 12. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Now, guys, that's, that's the, the biblical basis of what is known as a weaker brother principle. But the weaker brother principle in the wrong set of hands can be used quite tyrannically. It is indeed a biblical truth. I'm, and I hope you don't hear me trying to undercut the truth of it. Ladies and gentlemen, if our behaviors cause a, a weaker brother to stumble, not only have they sinned, but we have sinned as well. Now, let me give you the classic description, ladies and gentlemen. I had somebody, well, no, I called them yesterday. And, um, I mean, the classic example of, of this weaker brother principle at work. Um, I, had a, I was in a long conversation yesterday, um, 50 minutes and 50 seconds. I hate to be on the phone that long. Uh, and that's why I looked at the 50 minutes and 50 seconds. But um, this brother was terribly upset... And I think you ladies know what's about to come. He was upset with what he called promiscuous dress on the part of the women of Gracie Man. And he was taking my head off about the promiscuous dress on the part 
of the women of Gracie Van. Now, in the course of the conversation, I, I asked him what he would have me do about that. Uh, did he want me to form some kind of dress code and, and you know, examine skirt lengths and, and stand at the door with a ruler and, and um, you know, make sure that everybody's... And then, and then, of course, the plunging necklines are always a problem, and so we, we have to figure out, you know, how much plunge in a blouse. We, you know, what, what in the world does he want me to do about it? I can do this, ladies. I can plead with you. There is a point to be made. Um, if you as a mother dress or encourage your children to dress in a provocative manner, first of all, if you've got teenage girls and you're cutting loose your girls on those teenage guys, oh, may I implore you, please, Stop it. Don't let them, and, and by the way, I, I, um, uh, I think Richard Hall knows about this. We had to send a young woman home one day because she was about to sing on the stage and she wore, had something on. And Richard, isn't that, and I'm standing at right, am I? Aren't I? <clears throat> and we had to say, you know, we can't put you up there in that outfit. <laughs> and ladies, these teenage girls, if you're, if you're, as a mama, allowing them out of the house with that stuff, oh, for heaven's sakes, please help us. Because if I look down your blouse, I've sinned. But so have you. That's what the weaker brother principle is. If you, <clears throat> when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Now, that's always the best example I know of. Um, Kelly, would you please stand up? Oh, this is really bad, isn't it? Would you please stand up? <coughs> would you turn and face the audience, please? Does anyone in this room think that Mrs. Kelly Tipton is dressed immodestly? Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> She'll never speak to me again. <laughs> There is nothing immodest about way, the way Kelly... I mean, I, I hope you agree that there's nothing immodest about the way that Kelly is dressed. Now, here's where the weaker brother principle becomes tyranny. When I say to someone like who is dressed modestly, um, you've made me stumble because of your, of your dress today. Guys, I can use the weaker brother principle. I can say... Lime green is something that really makes me stumble. I'll tell you what really gets me is orange. Go vault. Uh, uh. I mean, do you see how I, this, this actually happened to me, ladies and gentlemen. When I was in the seminary, um, I played a lot of basketball in the winter and a lot of tennis in the spring. And um, I, I became, as I've told you before, I mean, anything that requires a ball, I do it pretty well. Um, <laughs> that's just a joke. Um, but I, we were playing tennis one day, and, you know, I was missing a shot every now and then, every now and then. And, um, and when I would miss a shot, I would say, foot. And, the, you know, the guy I was playing with said, <laughs> So we walked up to the net, and we had a conflab. And he said, I wish you'd stop saying that. I said, why? 
I said, he said, foot. And he said, I said, well, why? Well, it really makes me stumble. I didn't get it either. <laughs> you look at me like, well, what does he mean? I didn't know what he meant. I, you know, I said, oh, well, okay, I'm sorry. You know, poor guilty me. You know, just, uh, wicked sinner Jimmy here. I shouldn't have ever done it. I'm so sorry. Can you find it in your heart to forgive me? Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you what I should have said to him. Well, listen, Mr. Weaker Brother, you need to grow up. You need to get a little bit stronger then. Because, you see, the weaker brother principle can be used tyrannically. It can be used to say, to, to, to get you to condemn anything that you do, I can condemn it and hide behind the weaker brother principle. And so, it is a biblical truth. It has to be used. And I say, to you, ladies, I honestly believe, I think one of the good applications of the weaker brother principle is modest dress on your parts. But, I mean, we gentlemen have to dress modestly too, but that's usually not the issue. It's usually not the women calling me to say, you've got some promiscuous dressing on the part of men. <laughs> I've never heard that in my entire ministry. <clears throat> But, I mean, you know, but we still have to dress uh, uh, modestly, gentlemen. But it's usually you women. And I plead with you. I plead with you. Um, take that seriously. Uh, in front of, I mean, I had a woman stop me in the hall tonight and said um, that she was in a situation where um, her boys were watching a football game and, and uh, they had that commercial on about... Um, do you remember the beer commercial about the two guys who snuck into the art class and they're painting nudes? You didn't see that commercial? Somebody tell me they saw that commercial. Thank you. Uh, <coughs> and, um, you know, and then they're selling the beer. And, and, and Well, her son was just... And so the parents got together and said, well, you know, our sons are going to be des desensitized. And this mother said to me in the hall tonight, she said, my children are going to be desensitized at church. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing more that I can do except plead with you. We must take this seriously this, because the weaker brother principle is indeed a biblical truth. One that can be used by a legalist to tyrannize you. And at certain points, we who are lovers of grace have to say to the brother wielding that principle, we have to say to him, sorry, Bubba, grow up. And I say to you, if someone were to come to Kelly Tipton and say, you're really making me stumble because she needs to look at him and say, Bubba, this isn't my problem, it's yours. <coughs> you're sick. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with 1 Corinthians 8. But now, on the other hand, let me tell you how the antinomian uses the principle and violates it. The antinomian takes the principle and says, I've got freedom. I am free in Christ, and I am not about to let you bind me with your silly conscience. 
and to me, I mean, let's take, let's take a woman, since we, she says, and I'm not trying, I'm just trying to use a good illustration. Uh, she says, I have been set free in Christ, and I don't think there's anything wrong with the female body. And by the way, did you see that article in the paper the other day about nakedness and how they're trying to uh, promote naked? And, and did you read the article about Abercrombie and Fitch and the funnel nudity in their magazines? And Where have you people been? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, and the Ananomian says, I have complete freedom, and I, there's nothing that I see wrong about what I've got on, and if you are looking down my blouse, my friend, tough. Let me take another example, because you've heard me say this in here, I think. If you haven't heard me say it, I'm about to get myself in trouble. <clears throat> but I have absolutely no reserva or uh, oppositions. Are there any children in here? Because <laughs> I don't want to get you problems. Uh, I have no opposition to the consumption of a glass of wine. None. And I think you're going to have to go far and wide to get that one in the Bible. Uh, you know, far and wide. I mean, Jesus wasn't accused of being a wine bibber for nothing. <laughs> he was accused of being a wine bibber because he drank milk. Uh, but, but my point is, you're never going to see me drink a glass of wine. Never. You're never going to do that. Because of that principle. It's not that important to me. And for somebody to say, I am going to insist on my freedoms and I don't care who gets hurt by the exercise of my freedoms, I say to you, you don't understand the gospel. It is no big deal for me to sacrifice one of my freedoms so that you might not stumble. No big deal. And if it, it see, that's how the Anonymous uses it. He says, well, you know, I'm free and I'm not about to let anybody uh, hedge me in and if I like a glass of wine, I'm going to go out. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what would you think about me? Very honestly, I don't think you've got a biblical leg to stand on. But I'm not going to ever cause, I'm not, you know, you're not going to find any wine in my refrigerator. You're not going to find any wine in my refrigerator, you know? You're not going to find any beer, beer in my, you know, I, I wouldn't dream of doing that. It's just, a, it's just a liberty that is very easy for me to give up in the interest of the weaker brother. And I don't understand why people are so insistent on having all of their rights. Well, yeah, we got some liberties. But can't we set them aside so that the younger would not be hurt by our exercise of liberties? I, I, I don't think there's much of a case that you can make for taking your liberties to the extreme in the name of grace. And that, ladies and gentlemen, doing that is the very heartbeat of antinomianism which is what we want to spend the next 19 minutes talking about tonight. Guys, um, this discussion puts me in a, in a... I am impaled on the horns of a dilemma. <laughs> because I'm a man who wants to emphasize grace. But I do not want to emphasize grace 
at in such a way that men conclude that they are free to go out and do anything they so choose. Now, do you understand the word, let me just back up here, antinomianism, which is the opposite of legalism. It's a, it's, a, it's a combination of two words, anti. You know what anti is, just means against. And nomos, the Greek word for law is nomos, against law, against any law. An antinomian says, there is no law. I mean, there's no restriction because I'm free. Jesus set me free. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to fight to the death for your freedom, but not in such a way because, the, because I'm told not to, but we're going to look at some of that. Um, you cannot exercise your freedom in such a way that you are then conclude that you are freed to do anything. I am in no way advocating some kind of unrestrained freedom. And you see, I wonder if some of you, while I listed the characteristics of a Pharisee and a legalist, I wonder if some of you were out there thinking, well, goodness gracious, doesn't he oppose anything? I mean, doesn't he, doesn't he think we ought not do anything that, you know, judge? Well, see, here, now I hope the next couple of weeks will quiet some of your fears. I by no means want to advocate the living out and fleshing out of grace in unrestrained freedom. Here's, here's a quote about, uh, from Billy Sunday. <clears throat> that if you, I mean, this is me. <laughs> I think it was kind of cute, but he says, Billy Sunday said, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot, and I'll uh, fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. Well, that's me. I want to fight sin as long as we can, with everything that we can. But gang, there, there is a, there's a right and a wrong way, I, I'm telling you. And the legalists don't have the right way. What I, what I think we face, or the dilemma that I think we face is, how do we communicate love for people who are in sin while at, at the same time not encouraging them to go on in their sin? I'm in conversation with all kinds of folks. Um, let me just use the issue of homosexuality. It's a hot one among Christians. Too hot, I think. But... Um, how do I communicate to a man who is struggling with homosexuality? How do I communicate? I love you. I, I, I approve of you. Without then encouraging him to go on in his sin. Because that's the dilemma we're all impaled on, ladies and gentlemen. If we say, oh, you're just a rotten, wretched old sinner. Yeah, we can say that. I mean, it is ugly, isn't it? That sin. Or we can say, God's grace will forgive everything. And that's true, too, and, and rightly used. So we have to not encourage denouncing of people, while at the same time not encourage going on in the sin. Um, let me give you a, a, um, 
uh, just a couple of synonyms when we, when we talk about this error of antinomianism. It's the error of the libertine. I like that word. It's the error of living a life of license. All done. All done in the name of grace. Um, do you remember what we said was the fundamental flaw in the antinomian? Remember Jesus um, back in Matthew chapter 6 said, don't be like those guys. They just, when, all they do when they pray is they just repeat words and uh, repeat words and repeat words. And, and I said to you then that the fundamental flaw of antinomianism is mindlessness. That is, they're giving no thought. And we'll talk about that just in, in a minute. But, um, and as a result of giving no thought, they become a law unto themselves. The only law that exists is what I say. That's what the antinomian is doing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to stick with me here because um, um, we're going to have to correct a little bit of thinking, I think. Um, <clears throat> when I say his primary flaw is one of mindlessness, I am not saying <clears throat> that an antinomian says, oh, I just didn't think about it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what Solomon was saying in the book of Proverbs, chapter 29. If you've got your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn there. Now, um, this is a famous text that I think you've heard, and I think you've heard it somewhat incorrectly. How many of you have ever gone to a missions conference or a fundraising building drive where the theme was Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. You ever heard of that text? There it is. Proverbs 29, 18. Where there's no vision, the people perish. And so the, the preacher is paid to get behind the pulpit and give this unbelievably huge vision so that you won't perish and you'll follow him and, you know, take him wherever he's, you know, go, wherever he takes you. Now, that's the way the text has normally been understood. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is not what that text says. In fact, I bet you some of your translations even indicate that. Um, Proverbs 29, 18, uh, I've got a new King James. Um, you've heard it. I think the King James says where there's no vision, the people um, um, <coughs> perish. Is anybody got like King James? Am I quoting that correctly? I am. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, but now here's, here's the, the new King James. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Who's got an NIV out there? Read the NIV. Read the NIV. Same thing? Same thing? Is there another translation of it? No Let's do that, that one. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Where there's no vision, the people are unrestrained. So the last half is the same. It's just the first half is they're still using the word vision. But ladies and gentlemen, um, if you will, uh, I don't know about your um, translations, but uh, in this translation, they've got a little uh, mark by the, next, by the word revelation, and you go over the margin and you find out that um, uh, what the, 
what the word is has to do with some kind of prophetic utterance. Now, you know what revelation is, don't you? Revelation is not the book. We're not referring to the book of Revelation. You know what revelation is? Revelation is the process by which God exposes himself to us. He tells us what he, who, he's, who he is and what he loves and what he hates. That's what revelation is. He is, t- he is describing all of his loves and all of his hates. And he reveals that in, in numerous ways, in mandate by the Ten Commandments. He reveals it by names, etc., etc., etc. So when there is no revelation, people go unrestrained. That is, when the Word of God has not been introduced into our environments, the normal reaction to the Word of God being non-existent among us is what? What? People go unrestrained. Which implies what? What is it that's supposed to restrain us? Revelation. The, the thus saith the Lord, that is supposed to be the thing that provides for us the restraint. And so when that is removed, from our environment, the tendency then is for people to live any old blasted way they want to. Does that remind anybody of a statement in the book, in the Old Testament? Oh, it does. I mean, it's in the book of Judges. We're going to look at it before we ever get through. All right, you Bible students, you know this one. It starts like this. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That, ladies and gentlemen, is antinomianism. There's no king. There's no voice. There's no revelation. There's no statement. There's no thus that the Lord. Because when there is no thus saith the Lord, ladies and gentlemen, people do any old thing they think is right. And... Um, I've been listening to a series of tapes, a series of tapes by George Barna. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, he has researched the Christian church. And uh, some of the things that he's found out about us, gosh, it is not pretty. It is not very pretty. We're very, we're very, we're so much like the world, it's not even funny in our views of just about everything. Gang, where the voice of God is not being heard, when the voice of God is not being consulted or considered, where, where the mind of the people of God are not being instructed by God's revelation, men then become a law unto themselves. And that's what I mean by mindlessness. Their minds are not being hedged in and instructed by a thus saith the Lord. And I'll tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, in my humble opinion, I blame not you. 
I blame the pulpits of America who will not in the interest of something I don't know what I guess it, but it, are, are unwilling for whatever reason maybe they don't even believe it but when this thing disappears from among us people go unrestrained they become a law to themselves the only law that there exists is me and that's antinomianism and they turn around and say but I'm saved by grace ladies and gentlemen that's a that is a prostration. That is a violation. That is an abuse of grace. That's not living by grace. That's living by license. Um, what begins to result is that in the name of love and acceptance and forgiveness, we accept anything or everything in the name of, oh, the big word, of course, today is tolerance. And I'm telling you, your kids are going to come to you one day and they're going to say, Daddy, you're awfully hard on uh, uh, you're awfully hard on this issue. You just need to be more tolerant. And ladies and gentlemen, I, I suggest to you that tolerance can become downright harmful when it is nothing more than a euphemism for moral exhaustion. We don't, we don't stand for anything. And the reason that we don't stand for anything is because God's revelation has disappeared among us. G.K. Chesterton said, tolerance becomes the virtue of people who don't believe anything. And that's what your culture's got. They don't believe anything, and therefore, what is their number one virtue today? Tolerance. Guys, I want to tell you something. <laughs> I believe that I could grow this church by, I'm going to say 500. That's, that's probably a little, let's say, let's say 500. Let's just make it dramatic. I believe that I could grow this church by 500 by June 1st. I only have to do one thing. Or the, the elders have to... All you got to do is one thing. Just change one thing. All you got to do is say to the, to the community, we are going to ordain women as elders. That's all we got to do. It makes us look more tolerant. It makes us look more politically correct. It makes us look like we're with it. It makes us look like... I mean, it would really soften the image of, uh, of our whole church. It would make us look like we're really, you know, <coughs> not those mean old bigots that folks may think we are. You know, that's all we got to do. It's only one problem. What we'd have to do is to eliminate the voice of God from us. <clears throat> I mean, but see, once that's lifted out of there, you do anything. I mean, you can do anything. But this is the thing that's supposed to be restraining us. I'm telling you, the antinomian, he outgraces God. Uh, we only got a couple of minutes, but... Um, did y'all happen to notice this? This was a powerful statement, I thought, on the part of Tommy Elkin. Remember in the little parenting thing that we had, I mean, the marriage and parenting seminar, Tommy Elkin said, he said it on Saturday, and he didn't pause to explain much of it, but... Did you hear him say 
that there is no such thing as unconditional love? We, we banter that word around all the time. And you know what? Tommy Elkin's right. Do you think that God lets people into heaven without repentance and faith? His love is conditioned upon you exercising repentance and faith. You know that, don't you? So we can't say... I mean, but, but the antinomian is saying, oh, there are no boundaries. There are no restraints. There are no conditions. Uh, because I'll name them. Because I, uh, I, I get the right to do that, I guess. Gang, um, we'll come back and finish this up next week. But um, um, the, the the fundamental flaw of antinomians is that they is is that they're mindless. And what I mean by that is that their minds have just not been trained by the scriptures. And if they're not trained by the scriptures, then what trains them? The culture, Bill Clinton. Um, what, what is it? So, do you see, once you lift that notion out of there, what would happen to the church? She would live unrestrained. And so what we've got to do is make sure that we're living by grace, yes, but restrained by revelation. And so, all of you who have been thinking, oh, well, he's not going to put any restrictions. Oh, yes, I am. <laughs> I just want to make sure that they're these and not anything else. And we'll look further at that next week. Um, I think one of the things that we have... Is the choir rehearsing? They're not, they're not rehearsing tonight. Yeah. You are rehearsing tonight. Yeah. You are? Okay, good. I'm so, why don't you all go ahead and be dismissed now, and then I'll, um, I'll close in prayer so you all can get on with the, your... Uh, you don't want to be... Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, that's what we used to do, and, and, and I really dropped the ball on that. I want to give you all a head start on the rest of us. <clears throat> okay, Taras, that's you, Bubba. <laughs> We're counting on you. We're counting on Music Mission Kiev on Easter Sunday morning. <laughs> okay, why don't we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, guide us. Might we become people so, um, so free and yet so hedged in by your word? Because your word, it is not burdensome. Obedience to you is for our good. It's just these other obediences that have crept into us, that have made us silly. And I pray, O oh God, that what might always dominate here at Gracie Van is revelation rightly explained, rightly held on to, rightly lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's who we want to be, O oh God. People of enjoying the richness of grace and at the same time living in uh, responsible obedience, biblical obedience. Father, we we commit ourselves to do that, and we do all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks, guys. Good night, and hope to see you next week.